Welcome to the podcast on Becoming. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson. I'd love to hear from you. Please do send me your questions, comments, your suggestions to onbecomingpodcast, that's all one word, at gmail.com. So that's onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. And of course, if you're enjoying what you're hearing on the podcast, perhaps you might consider supporting it at patreon.com slash onbecomingpodcast. Let me start with something that at first may seem like it has nothing to do with the topic, Jesus the Deconstructor. I've been reading about our brains and how we make decisions. If you've listened to some of the previous episodes, you'll know that I've already discussed notions like taste, tact, judgment. These are all examples that we used um, from Gadamer uh, to talk about how we make distinctions and how we make choices in a kind of intuitive fashion. Neuroscience, of course, is basically in its infancy. We're learning many things about our brains, but there are so many things we simply don't understand. For instance, neuroscientists still don't know how the brain takes in multiple options and then chooses. We don't even know how our brains come up with thoughts, though we do know they do. But one thing that neuroscience has made clear is that our brains are in a kind of power struggle. Our left and right brains are in competition, which is probably why they needed to be separate. One of the books I'm reading at the moment is Ian McGilchrist's The Master and His Emissary, Divided Brain and the Making of the Western World. That title alone tells you quite a bit. I find this particularly interesting because over a century ago, Nietzsche claimed that human beings are directed by competing drives. Put another way, Nietzsche is saying that we are never really of one mind. Instead, we have parts of our being that lean one way and other parts that lean the other way. Of course, even by putting that in such terms, there's a kind of distortion. While there may be things we decide to do or avoid, many of our choices aren't nearly as neat and uncomplicated as that. In many cases, choose X over Y is not merely to make a simple decision, because choosing X over Y may result in choosing something that has very different consequences for the rest of our lives, and that could be lifelong in terms of its effect. A more accurate model would be one in which there are drives leading us in many different directions. And of course, having worked with very talented undergraduates, one of the problems that I found for them was often figuring out which of the many possibilities they could or should choose. Philosophers call this the divided self. We may decide to choose one thing or course of action over others, but there may be parts of us that are not completely happy with that decision. Yet McGilchrist points out that precisely this interaction, this disagreement, this, this kind of butting heads uh, against one another, yeah, it's like butting brains in this case, is what makes us able to think. The brain, and here I'm going to quote from him, contains mutually opposed elements whose contrary influence make possible finely calibrated responses to complex situations. If you want a concrete example of a divided self, just think about when your conscience, 
which of course is part of you, says in effect to the other part of you, um, that's not a good idea, or I don't think you should do that. It's precisely this ability to stand back, metaphorically of course, from ourselves, and examine ourselves and our possible courses of action. So you would never want a unified self. You're always better off if the different drives continue to thrive. That will enable you to reason better. But of course, my point in talking about how the brain is, that we now have a better idea of what it means to think. And we now realize that analysis is only one part of the process. At the risk of telling you what you already know, let me point out that our right brain is what controls things. McGilchrist writes the following. The left hemisphere is ultimately dependent on, one might almost say parasitic on, the right, though it seems to have no awareness of this fact. Indeed, it is filled with alarming self-confidence. The ensuing struggle is as uneven as the asymmetrical brain from which it takes its origin. My hope is that awareness of the situation may enable us to change course before it is too late. Now, McGilchrist believes that Western civilization has become way too dominated by the left brain. But you might ask, why is this so important? The left brain is, as we just noted, quite assured of the validity of its judgments. But the left brain is also constantly on a quest for certainty. It has a high opinion of its judgments, but it continually searches for further evidence that it's right, as in correct. Of course, note that the left brain really wants confirmation of what it already takes to be true. It's generally not that interested in anything that disrupts its singular mission. So, of course, it is not going to be interested in facts that create a problem for the theories that the left brain has created. It's also, of course, the left brain that created the idea of objective truth. The right brain, of course, is far too nuanced in its convictions to support the idea of objectivity. It knows that what it knows is limited. But there's a further point. And here again, I want to quote from McGilchrist. The left hemisphere deals with what it knows and therefore prioritizes the expected. Its process is predictive. That makes it more efficient in routine situations where things are predictable, but less efficient than the right whenever the initial assumptions need to be revised or when there is a need to distinguish old information from new material that may be consistent with it. In other words, the left brain is great at working on information it already knows, tilling the soil for more information, trying to get a better grasp of it. But the right brain is a side that can deal with something new. The left brain, in contrast, has the tendency to ignore or even deny things that don't fit. The left brain is surprisingly resistant to change. McGilchrist is reluctant to ascribe too much to the idea that, as individuals, we are more left or right brain. And his reasoning is simple. Thinking requires both hemispheres, so there isn't a choice between using our left or right brain. 
Both are always involved in all decisions and all processes. Yet the difference is how and the extent to which they are involved. There is evidence, yes, that left-handed people are more connected to the right brain. Similarly, if your dominant eye, by the way, um, everyone has a dominant eye. If you don't know what that is, your, your um, ophthalmologist can, can tell you that. If your dominant eye is on the left, that also seems to signal stronger dependence upon the right hemisphere. Interestingly enough, both birds and horses use their left eyes to deal with something new and different. Their right eyes are used to deal with things that they're already familiar with. Now, there's a further aspect here. The thinking of the left brain is completely decontextualized, which means that it, and here I'm quoting from McGilchrist, tends towards a slavish following of the internal logic of the situation, even if this is in contravention of everything experience tells us. That's the end of the quote. To say that the left brain is stubborn is a massive understatement. Moreover, the two hemispheres work in different ways. The left brain works with categories that it creates. The right brain operates by way of specific examples to which more general statements are compared. It is the right brain that can see something as a whole, which is why recognition of another person as a person is a right brain activity. McGilchrist puts this as follows. Because the right hemisphere sees nothing in the abstract, but always appreciates things in their context, it is interested in the personal, by contrast with the left hemisphere, which has more affinity for the abstract or impersonal. I think I've mentioned this dichotomy between what we call analytic philosophy versus continental philosophy. People often ask me, so what's the difference? That's a really hard question to answer in a general sense, though I can assure you this. If you were to spend even a brief time reading some analytic philosophy and then read some continental philosophy, you'd probably see that they are not exactly the same. So at the risk of oversimplifying and perhaps even um, offending um, analytic colleagues, I think analytic philosophy is much more the product of the left brain than the right. Analytic philosophers are great at analyzing things and dividing them up into their various parts. And this is an extremely useful skill. It is necessary to our development and our survival. But dividing everything up to examine each piece also has the effect of removing things from their context. Continental philosophers, in contrast, are usually more attuned to context and difference. They would insist that you can't understand anything unless there's a context. And that context is highly important to understanding any particular thing. In case you're wondering, um, where's the context in highly analytic thinking? Well, the context is, unfortunately, just this abstraction. In other words, a very, very abstract context, a very thin context, not a thick one. Your left brain is very good at dissection. But of course, as that line from William Wordsworth goes, they murdered to dissect. Wordsworth's point is that dissection results in killing the very thing being dissected. McGilchrist says, and here I'm quoting, 
If one had to characterize the left hemisphere by reference to one governing principle, it would be that of division. Manipulation and use require clarity and fixity, and clarity and fixity requires separation and division. What is moving and seamless, a process, becomes static and separate, things. It is the hemisphere of either or. Now, of course, both of these hemispheres, both of these processes can be termed reason. But our development as human beings, at least in the West, is such that we have come to value left hemisphere thinking over right hemisphere thinking. If anything, according to McGilchrist, it should be the other way around. Even the way in which we relate to our bodies differs from the left to the right brain. Quoting McGilchrist again, the right hemisphere is responsible for our sense of the body as something we live, something that's part of our identity, and which is, if I can put it that way, the phase of intersection between ourselves and the world at large. For the left hemisphere, by contrast, the body is something from which we are relatively detached, a thing in the world, like other things, devitalized, a corpse. Now, it's been the standard sort of take in neuroscience. The left hemisphere is the one that is associated with speech. But McGilchrist argues that the right hemisphere is very much in language, involved in language too. In fact, he says this, the right hemisphere's particular strength is in understanding meaning as a whole and in context. It is with the right hemisphere that we understand the moral of a story as well as the point of a joke. It is therefore particularly important whenever non-literal meaning needs to be understood. Practically everywhere, therefore, in human discourse, and particularly where irony, humor, indirection, or sarcasm are involved. McGilchrist puts this even more strongly in a later section of the text. He says, the understanding of language at its highest level once the bits have been put together the making sense of an utterance in its context, take into account whatever else is going on, including the tone, irony, sense of humor, use of metaphor, and so on, belongs once again with the right hemisphere. But whereas analytic philosophers often explicitly rule out metaphor as a way of doing philosophy, McGilchrist says this, metaphor is the crucial aspect of language whereby it retains its connectedness to the world. Literal language, by contrast, is the means whereby the mind loosens its contact with reality and becomes a self-consistent system of tokens. Did you hear that correctly? Metaphor is what connects us to the world. Analysis disconnects us from the world. I hope that talking about the brain and how it operates is interesting enough on its own. But there is a more specific reason for mentioning these aspects. Put simply, the right hemisphere is more capable of a frame shift. That's a quote from McGilchrist too. The right hemisphere is more capable of taking in something new, seeing something in a new way. The left brain is pleased with itself and it needs a good deal of persuading to change its mind, so to speak. The right brain is much less certain and thus much more open to new experience. 
One of the things that Socrates tells us, and he talks about this over and over, is that if we think we already know something, then no one can teach us about that thing. Because, of course, we already know. It's only when you and I are willing to entertain the frightening thought, I might be wrong, that you can change your mind. But note that changing your mind here is not merely a matter of hearing a better argument. It's your right brain that is most likely to change. And the right brain changes its mind in response to an entire scenario, not just a syllogism. So here's my starting point. Jesus lived long before neuroscience, but he has a remarkable understanding of what it means to be human. What I want to argue is that Jesus is much more attuned to the right than the left brain. I think this comes through in so many ways, but the most important thing is this. Jesus does things that challenge our ways of thinking. He challenged the ways of thinking in the past, but he continues to challenge anyone who is hankering after left-brain certainty. His thinking is highly contextual, which is why he suspends or overrules the rules in certain situations. We'll get there in just a moment. What Jesus does is deconstruct the views and the actions of the religious leaders of his time. Now, instead of starting with an explanation of deconstruction, what I want to do is show it in action. Don't worry, we'll come back to an explanation of it. Perhaps the central charge that Jesus lays against the Pharisees and scribes is that they're guilty of idolatry. Now, for many of us, merely the term Pharisee has become a word of opprobrium. But we have to remember that the Pharisees in Jesus' day were seen as the exemplary people. They were the people that you should follow, the, the pious people, the holy people. They were the good people of, the, of, of their time. They followed the rules. In Jesus' time, these were the folks who everyone considered to be truly spiritual. So Jesus shouldn't be read as giving anything like a blanket condemnation of them. Yet Jesus does take particular doctrines of theirs and shows how they end up being idolatrous. A good example of what I like to call Jesus the deconstructor is the following. This is a passage from Scripture. Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders, for they do not wash their hands before they eat? He answered them, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and whoever speaks ill of father or mother must surely die. But you say that whoever tells father and mother, Whatever sport you might have had from me is given to God, then that person need not honor the father. So for the sake of your tradition you make void the word of God. You hypocrites! Isaiah rightly prophesied about you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching human precepts as doctrines. Do you catch what just happened? Jesus is deconstructing the claim that if we decide to give our time and resources to God, then we don't have any obligation to our parents anymore. What? You might think, well, giving what you can to God is good. But Jesus is saying, this is just a ruse. You say that you're going to honor God, 
and you think that lets you off the hook for honoring your parents. Think about this with your right brain. The Pharisees are choosing the vague path of honoring God and using that as justification for not honoring their parents, which is a very specific thing. And once your parents age, often a particularly difficult obligation. There are at least two steps to Jesus' criticism that the Pharisees and scribes have nullified God's commands. Step one, the Pharisees and scribes put forth a claim if one gives to God whatever one would normally owe to one's parents, then one owes nothing to one's parents. Step two, they make the further claim, implicitly or explicitly, that this claim comes not from them but from God. That is, they put forth, as Jesus puts it, human precepts as doctrines. The problem with both of these claims is that the Pharisees and scribes are in effect claiming more than they are entitled to claim. Not only do they make a rule for which they have no support, they teach that rule as doctrine. Did you hear that? Religious leaders making stuff up and then expecting their followers to keep their commands. That's a very important distinction. Jesus makes a very sharp distinction between their tradition and the commands, accusing them of claiming the status of the latter for the former. So their sin is both, if you like complicated words, metaphysical and epistemological in nature. They invent an untruth, which they claim is really from God, and then they claim to know it. But the context for these remarks let that sink in, right brain, is that Jesus has been criticized for not following the tradition of the religious leaders of his day. His response is, in effect, you are so much more concerned with your own human traditions that you ignore specific commandments from God. But in case you're hung up with the part that these are commandments from God and you don't believe in God, let's put it in other terms. Virtually all societies that anthropologists have visited have strong senses of duty in respect to one's parents. Uh, you probably realize that as a philosopher, I'm inserting virtually here simply because, well, there might be some society out there that doesn't have this, but we basically haven't found it if that's the case. In fact, we can simply say that the kind of care and love that our parents show to us and we to them is a major reason why we exist. Human life is extremely fragile. For instance, as soon as dolphins are born, they can start swimming. Human beings don't come into the world in, in that kind of a state. Without love and a lot of care, they cannot develop into full adults. It's not merely a question of surviving. It's also a question of what kind of life we have. Children that do not have love shown to them usually grow up to be very troubled people. And Jesus is saying, in effect, that this relationship is a two-way street. Children have an obligation to their parents, too. Jesus doesn't spell out what that obligation entails, most likely because all of his hearers would have known and wouldn't have needed any explanation. So what makes this deconstruction? Jesus is, in effect, unpacking the Pharisees' claims. Anytime you start to unpack an idea or concept, you are engaged in deconstruction. Biblical commentaries are extremely good examples of deconstruction. Why? They're based on a particular text, and the goal is to help the reader understand all that's going on in a passage. 
Deconstruction in a Bible commentary involves taking something apart very carefully in order to investigate its components. The reason for the careful examination is both that one, we're able, sorry, we are apt to pass over that which is familiar precisely because it's familiar. And the second aspect is this. Many times important aspects of a given idea of belief, aspects which sometimes prove foundational for the thinking contained therein, are not obvious and may even be suppressed, and not infrequently for underhanded reasons. The very careful taking apart of deconstruction can have, though certainly doesn't necessarily have, the effect of exposing something for what it is. A natural effect of showing something to be questionable is that people are going to be less likely to believe it anymore. And that's exactly what Jesus does here. He pries apart the system of doctrine that the Pharisees and scribes have set up, showing their error and their true motivation. Jesus describes them by the term hypocrites, which translates into English as hypocrite. The two most obvious ways in which they are guilty of hypocrisy is by their placing of a heavy burden of laws upon others, even though they themselves do not necessarily follow those laws, and by claiming to honor God in their speech, but not doing so in their hearts. In both cases, they say one thing and they act differently. But the root of these hypocrisies is a third sort, one far less obvious, yet far more dangerous. Hypocrisis was the verb used by the Greeks to denote acting on the stage. Normally, the actor, the hypocrites, spoke using a device to enhance his voice and wore a mask large enough to obscure his face. In other words, a hypocrites was someone pretending to be someone else. Although the Pharisees and scribes do not claim to be God in so many words, they do so by inventing a tradition and then ascribing it to God. They are pretending to be God, and the tradition reflects their minds. They are indirectly guilty of idolatry, for they speak as if they had taken on the persona of God. Thus, our idolatry is not merely the act of placing a something in God's place, since that something is actually a reflection of themselves. They have effectively put themselves in place of God. Theirs is a way of thinking that is the product of their own human traditions. Not only does Jesus point out that the Pharisees and scribes have fallen in the error of idolatry, he also reveals their selfish motives. Rather than having a pure concern for truth, Jesus claims that they act for the sake of their tradition. There's nothing wrong, of course, inherently at least, with human tradition. The Pharisees have taken their human tradition and claimed that it is from God. In other words, according to them, it's not a tradition, it's the word of God. But this should not be surprising. A typical characteristic of idolatry is the denial of the situatedness of moral claims. One postulates a particular moral prohibition and then claims that it has come from God. In the same way that the Pharisees seem almost unaware of that fact, so we often think that our own moral ideas are those of God. Finally, the reason why the Pharisees have done this is relatively simple and straightforward, 
by promoting their own tradition, they further their own ends. It's in their best interest for them to claim the honor due father and mother in the same way that it sometimes behooves Christian institutions to claim the devotion normally given to one's family. The effect of Jesus' deconstruction is that anyone with ears to hear, or as Nietzsche puts it, one who has ears even behind his ears, should take heed. Now that we've seen Jesus the deconstructor in action, let's examine what deconstruction is. Years ago, I heard a person in a religious setting say the following, deconstruction is a theory that says you can make texts mean anything you want them to mean. Unfortunately, of course, this statement itself sounds like the kind of deconstruction that he's denouncing, because such a statement implies that deconstruction can mean whatever he wants it to mean. But it's not as simple as that. Derrida insists that deconstruction, and here I'm quoting from him, is not a philosophy or a method. It is not a phase, a period, or a moment. It is something which is constantly at work and was at work before what we call deconstruction started. In other words, deconstruction just happens. It's not something one chooses to do per se. If anything, it is something that automatically happens to texts and systems and ideas and even to us. There's a sense in which texts are not so much deconstructed as they deconstruct themselves. What that means is to see the complications, perhaps contradictions, that are already in the text. Deconstruction takes place when we question a theory or a text, when we try to reformulate its meaning, or we, when we try to consider what's left unsaid in a text versus what is said. Earlier I pointed out that Jesus didn't say anything about what uh, people needed to do in terms of honoring their parents because he didn't need to. He assumed people knew what that was. Now, deconstruction is not a completely new notion with Derrida, although Derrida is um, really good at working out a lot of the complications of this. He gets the notion, really, from uh, Edmund Husserl, the uh, notion of abbau, which is literally unbuilding, the unbuilding of a complex structure into its component parts. I think such unbuilding is similar in many ways to what philosophers call analysis. But whereas both pay attention to what a text or idea or statement or theory says and the way in which it is structured, deconstruction puts particular emphasis on what the text does not say, whatever is assumed but not explicitly stated, as well as on the points at which its structure or content is vulnerable. Now, We've talked about the right brain and how the right brain is so attuned to context. Now, let me give you another example of this. It's from Derrida. It's a claim that he makes. And this is the claim. There is nothing outside of the text. Now, this was made by Derrida in a text back in 1967, so a long time ago. And many people have taken this to mean all sorts of silly things, that there are no things in the world like tables or llamas or whatever. But Derrida actually means something much more profound. The claim occurs in a text on Jean-Jacques Rousseau, a French philosopher, 
And Rousseau thinks of language as something that needs to be overcome, as something that gets between us and the world. Rousseau would like it if we could simply get rid of language and experience the world as it really is, instead of language mediating the world for us, providing a lens to view, to categorize, to make sense of the world. Rousseau doesn't want any lens at all. The problem, of course, is that there is no such thing as this unmediated relationship to the world. Even what we call truth is a function of both the world out there and the world inside our brains. From my point of view, we are already in the world, so it's not like the world is at some distance removed from us. Moreover, I also think that objectivity is utterly undesirable, because if you are objective, then in fact all you would get would be a blur of sense data. Your right brain would not know what to do with that. So whether we're relating to the world or to a text, there is no relation without mediation, no reading without interpretation. Here we need to make two important qualifications. In terms of reading, Derrida recognized that there are interpretations that come very close to saying exactly what the text says. He specifically calls these doubling commentaries, in which the commentary comes so close to the text as to be nearly indistinguishable from what it says. Such commentaries provide what he calls an indispensable guardrail that protect a text. And he says, without this recognition and respect, critical production would risk developing in any direction at all. But there's a flip side to this. Doubling commentaries never get so close to the text that they simply repeat it. Any commentary, any interpretation, will inevitably add something to the reading or to the interpretation. So language or concepts are always at work when we try to understand something. An example here might be useful. If you've seen the movie, The Gods Must Be Crazy, then you'll know that the movie is based on the premise of a pilot flying in a remote part of the world who throws a Coke bottle out of the window. The people living be below find this bottle and wonder what it is. Note, of course, that to interpret the glass object as a Coke bottle is fully appropriate and correct. But that is already an interpretation. And, of course, the interpretation of it by the people who find the Coke bottle as a lost object of the gods is a perfectly understandable interpretation given the strange context. But, of course, it turns out to be a much less accurate interpretation. Now, people like Derrida have often been accused of giving up truth precisely because they think they know the world in an interpreted way. But the problem with this reading is that it presupposes the possibility of seeing things uninterpreted. Usually this assumption goes along with, of course, the notion of objectivity. The problem, though, with objectivity is that it actually doesn't make any sense. To see someone or something from the point of view of a subject is precisely how human beings see and how they relate to the world. It's not possible to remove ourselves from the equation. We can't view the world from a no point of view, because 
that's not what it is to be human. Now, there's a further problem with this notion of objectivity, and that is, I think it's fundamentally anti-Christian. What I mean by that is Christianity, Jesus talks this way, Paul talks this way, involves becoming a certain kind of person. And becoming a certain kind of person is about knowing, but it's also about being, being the kind of person who is able to understand. Now, I want to contrast that with the kind of objectivity presupposed by the Enlightenment. You could say the modern period. Actually, it's, it's really the Reformation and the Enlightenment together that sort of create this notion of objectivity. This kind of objectivity presupposed by the Enlightenment is one in which it doesn't matter who you are. As long as you can learn the scientific method, then people, scientists, are like interchangeable parts. Now, of course, the problem here is we know this isn't true. That is, people are not interchangeable parts. It's not possible to compare people uh, one to another in a full sense, we can compare them maybe in terms of their scores on a standardized test or their ability to do something. But when we're talking about people, we're not talking about interchangeable parts. We're talking about beings that are simply different from one another, that have integrity and deserve respect. We know that treating people like replaceable parts is a way of denigrating them. This way of thinking of people as interchangeable parts is unfortunately all too common in our world. It is, sorry to say, a basic tenet of capitalism. Derrida is quite insistent that there are better or worse interpretations of a text or of the world. Moreover, he even talks about the need for something like interpretive police to make sure that texts can't just mean anything. Now, I need to tell you a little bit about something that Derrida believes. Um, let me read this statement, and then I'll explain it. Derrida claims that, and here's the claim, undecidability is the condition of all deconstruction. Whoa, okay, now we have a big thing. What's undecidability? So, deconstruction is the continual modification and reformulation of all formulations. In other words, it's constantly work in human understanding, explaining, and questioning. If you were in class and you, you said to the person next to you, what, what did the instructor just say? And the person then gave you a paraphrase of what had been said by the instructor. The possibility of questioning or reformulating or deepening is precisely what deconstruction is. Undecidability is not the idea that one does not decide or even that one cannot decide, but that one cannot use any infallible or certain criterion to make the decision. Just in case you're wondering, the ability to decide whether something fits under the category of a rule is in the right brain, because the right brain is able to see something in context. Of course, once we've come to see that everything has a context, we should realize that, as useful as rules might be, they're insufficient. That means, in effect, you will have to think. Let me give you an example of this. 
I was teaching an intro course in philosophy, and I made an elaborate point when we got to Aristotle that Aristotle thinks that moral decisions are only based on, on context, the time, the place, the people involved, and all the circumstances. Then when we got to Kant, a philosopher who thinks that rules should never be violated, I pointed out that Kant's commitment to telling the truth no matter what was actually a problem. I think it points to a fundamental problem about how Kant thinks about morality. If you studied philosophy, you probably know the, the standard example people use to question Kant is this. What if you were hiding Jews in your attic and the SS showed up to your door? It's usually thought, and probably rightly, that Kant would insist that you follow the rule, don't lie. But the problem with a view like this is that it's extremely mechanical, as if following a rule were just like following a recipe to make a cake. Instead, the rule, don't lie, is merely one of the many guidelines we use to make moral decisions. But we just considered, there seem to be two crystal clear arguments against following the rule in this case. The first argument is simply that the rules are there to help us implement moral values, but they themselves are not sacred. There are times when a rule no longer matters. In this case, the most compelling argument, this will appeal to your right brain, is that you are protecting people from harm. Not harming ourselves or others is one of the most basic tenets of morality. So no, you shouldn't tell the Nazis that you are hiding Jews. But there's another argument that is pertinent. Telling the truth is truly important. No one wants to be told lies. But telling the truth is not itself an absolute. Like everything else, it requires context. Just for context sake, let me remind you the Nazis took over Germany and rewrote the laws. They committed genocide, and not just with Jews. It should be very clear that people who want information in order to kill other people probably shouldn't be given that information. So how does this relate to my class? Well, one of the students asked, so if lying is sometimes okay, how do we know when it's okay? Bear, bear in mind here, just, just to be clear, my argument at was actually not that lying in such a situation was okay, but that lying was actually the one right thing to do. To tell the truth in such a situation is deeply immoral in my, <laughs> as far as I can tell. But then I had to go back to all the stuff on Aristotle in which I had pointed out that becoming a moral person requires considerable thought and takes a long time and requires a lot of reflection. So that was how you would know when telling a lie would be appropriate. But just to be clear, Derrida is not saying that we are left with the indeterminacy of free play in which no meaningful distinctions can be made. If anything, Derrida may be guilty of overemphasizing that indeterminacy, but it's a really good and helpful reminder. I read Derrida as reminding us of the fragility of our distinctions. Speaking of making moral distinction, Derrida claims, quote, this does not mean that we should not calculate. We have to calculate as rigorously as possible, but there is a point or limit beyond which calculation must fail, and we must recognize that. 
To say that all decisions are undecidable, Derrida points the ultimate impossibility of calculation. If, for example, I decide to do X rather than Y, I can provide reasons for doing so. But I can't provide them in the sense of providing a mathematical calculation that explains my action. It's not like 2 plus 2 equals 4. This is not to say that I just felt like doing X or I can't give any reason at all. But the problem is that machines operate by way of calculus and people make decisions. In his later text, Derrida explicitly argues that his notion of undecidability is and always has been about avoiding violence. I think that's correct. Before we close, though, let's go back briefly to what Jesus is doing. He's questioning the so-called moral demands of the, that the Pharisees make of their followers. I want to leave you with this question. Do you think that what Jesus does is meant as a model for us to follow? Yes, if you follow Jesus, in whatever sense that may be, then you will want to follow his example. But I'm asking a little bit more complicated question. Does following example mean that you, too, need to do some deconstructing? perhaps in your own little world or community? I think the answer must be an unequivocal yes. Let me put this another way. One could think that Jesus provides a way of living and it's a good idea to follow it. That's what I think. But I also think Jesus wasn't suggesting that only he had the right to question the religious authorities. As always, thanks for listening to Unbecoming. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson.